You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belabored, episode 138. We've got a special episode for you, a talk looking at labor history, featuring a new anthology on the global history of the Wobblies, the industrial workers of the world, edited by Peter Cole, David Struthers, and Kenyon Zimmer. And I was in conversation with Peter Cole about the book um, and the history of the Wobblies and what we can learn from them today at the Cornell Worker Institute. So we're going to start with that. And as an addendum, we will have a one-on-one talk between me and Sarah about what we can learn from the Wobblies today and what it says about our current political moment. A hundred years ago, the world of labor was a pretty rough place. Powerful monopolies ran empires of steel, maritime shipping, railroads and mines, and workers toiled under dreadful conditions without unions and virtually no standards on wages or working conditions. And then came the Wobblies. At the dawn of the 20th century, the Wobblies, or industrial workers of the world, campaigned for a unified working class movement across borders, race, and nationality. And over the years, the idea of one big union inspired workers around the world to challenge capitalism, imperialism, and even militarism in their own communities, from the mines of South Africa to the docks of Los Angeles. In a new anthology about the global history of the industrial workers of the world, historians discuss why and how they succeeded in inspiring so many workers worldwide, and why the Wobblies might be an inspiration for today's labor movement. In conversation with the editor of the volume, labor historian Peter Cole, at the Cornell Worker Institute, I asked about how the Wobblies' message was able to go viral, so to speak, back in their day. Why did their syndicalist model of building worker power, which was based on direct action as opposed to negotiating with bosses, why did that model appeal to workers in so many countries and cultures as a framework for workers' liberation? So, um, you know, the British Empire was the greatest or worst empire of the early 20th century, right? Um, And so white working class people traveled throughout the British Commonwealth and Empire, right? Like, uh, so you had... Um, Irish and Scottish and English and Welsh people who ended up in South Africa or Australia or New Zealand, right? Um, and so Wobbly Ideas come to New Zealand, a small country with just a few million people, right? Um, in a remote part of our world, right? Um, overwhelmingly rural natural resource extraction, very similar really to the American West in the early 20th century, where you've got mining, right? You've got agriculture and ranching. Uh, New Zealand sheep, right, uh, which we all know about, right, um, but really for the wool, not for the meat, right, like, uh, and so Wobblies end up in New Zealand, right, um, they start organizing, well, it's a, it's, it's a industrializing, it's not an industrial, right, really, it's sort of both pre-industrial and industrial, like much of the world was in that era, and like some of the world still is, right, like, uh, and so they start organizing, they do like uh, mining, like maritime is one of those industries where we do see worker radicalism stronger than in other sectors. It's because the work is dangerous and collective, right? And so therefore workers are often see each other as we need each other, not just we like each other, but we need each other, right? Like if I'm going to get out of this mine today, it might be because one of my brothers, right, in fact, drags me out um, after the shaft collapses, right? Like, I mean, that I could walk into this workplace and die today, right? Like, uh, you know, well, who do I depend upon? Not the boss, right? Like, uh, and so these ideas, right, um, are brought into New Zealand. And what do uh, Wobblies in New Zealand start to do? Well, actually, not all workers in New Zealand are of British descent, right? Some, in fact, are the native peoples, Maori, right? Like, uh, and although many British imports to New Zealand were um, often treated the Maori as um, not unlike here in the United States, as sort of an indigenous group that is sort of um, outcast and uh, mistreated and persecuted if they're land taken, etc. Some Maoris worked in industry, right? Like so, uh, while we started to try to organize them, not easy to do because there's huge cultural um, suspicion on both sides, probably, right? Um, but nevertheless, some white New Zealanders, right, um, learn Maori, right, um, and try to convince Maoris to join one big union, right? like a, an incredible example, right, of how Wabi's try to be anti-racist, 
it is in their self-interest, right? Because you need these workers too. They're part of these industries, right? Um, but it's also um, beyond what most other workers who aren't Maori were willing or imagined doing. Like that. And so, um, you know, for a small period of time, often Wabwees were episodic um, in their activism, uh, you know, organized um, actually a bit longer in New Zealand, but um, also there's examples of for a year or so where the IWW paper is publishing in both English and Maori, which is amazing, right? Um, and the back and forth between New Zealand and Australia was also a, a sort of um, comes up in a number of um, our chapters. Uh, it's actually further than you think uh, between these two islands, but uh, nevertheless, they're close enough that they were going back and forth regularly, right? Um, and there was not, to my knowledge, organizing among aboriginals in Australia, although I also don't know if aboriginals even were being hired by way by companies. I would guess not in the early 20th century. Although I could say, just based on other research I've done, that during the anti-apartheid struggle, right, um, when trying to get South Africa to abandon white minority rule, that both aborigines in Australia and Maori in New Zealand were um, part of, in their own countries, anti-apartheid activism, especially in this cultural sports boycott, right, when rugby, South African rugby teams were coming to New Zealand and Australia. We also explored how the Wobblies' struggle against global capitalism shaded into the struggles against imperialism in many of the colonial territories that had a Wobbly presence, and how the movement helped strengthen their resistance against empire. In many places in the world, in the early 20th century, countries were not free. They were still colonies, right? Like, uh, and so Wobblies occasionally organized in, in colonial settings, and then the debates often were, you know, which side are you with anti-colonialist, right? A liberation struggle. And, but what, what does the liberation struggle look like? Is it simply to sort of maintain a capitalist relations but in an independent quote nation, or is it also a socialist struggle, right? Uh, most obviously in recent times in South Africa, that was one of the big questions still talked about, if only talked about, right? That there's a two-part revolution, right? The national revolution against apartheid and then a socialist one will come later, right? Um, in Ireland in the book, talk a lot about James Connolly, an Irish revolutionary and a legend who's killed in 1916 during what was called the Easter Rising, um, an attempt by the Irish, some parts of the Irish Republican Army to basically seize the moment during World War I when the British are looking towards the continent in order to, let's go for Irish independence now, right? Um, bold, ultimately failed in the moment, right? And uh, many of those who rose up were killed by the British uh, Army, right? And states subsequently, including James Right. Uh, another Wobbly from Ireland who lived in America that went back to Ireland, Jim Larkin, right, isn't killed, actually, in the Easter Rising. Um, and uh, Marjorie Murphy's chapter deals a lot with these complicated matters, right, because they're divided amongst themselves, too, right? In the case of another chapter by Tariq Khan, yeah, we've got um, South Asians, largely from what now are India and Pakistan, right, um, still a British colony, right, um, living in the Pacific Northwest, um, a small immigrant population um, in the thousands, not in the hundreds of thousands or millions, but who were organizing in the South Asian diaspora against British colonialism, right? Um, and who were the people, and by the way, Hindus, as they were just called, regardless of religion, were treated like crap, right, um, across the American continent. Um, but who takes them in? Wobblies, right? <laughs> so the Wobblies basically organized um, in a timber industry and some of those people happen to be South Asians who therefore become converts to the cause and bring Wabi ideas into their political struggle, um, which was a global struggle because there were South Asians around the world, but the British Empire was around the world, right? Um, and we've got leading um, global figures of the South Asian um, Ghadar movement, right, who are Wabis, right? Like, uh, because um, they found the Wabis because they were needed to pay the rent, right? Like, uh, um, evolutionary is often a part-time job, <laughs> you know, while you have a full-time job to pay the rent, right? Like, uh, uh, meanwhile, in Spain, right, in the 1930s, we've got Wabis who fight with the communists, even though legendary conflicts between these two groups, right? Um, but join the communist international brigades because there is no Wabi brigade to fight against fascism in Spain in 1937. And so, well, maybe I can sort of fight on behalf of um, the, the socialism in Spain by joining the communist brigades um, there. And Matt White's chapter um, is, I think, one of the star chapters in, in, in the book uh, because 
he does incredible work tracing how Philadelphia sailors, Philadelphia-based dock workers and sailors, go to Spain to do this fight. What do they find? The communists don't get along well with the Wobblies because the Wobblies want a democratic army, right? They don't want to take orders. They actually want to help fight <laughs> and organize, like, uh, you know, on the front lines, right? Um, and are often sort of persecuted by the, uh, uh, within the international brigades because they have um, this sort of democratic and or anarchistic streak in them that is untamed, right? Um, and uh, although it backfires, according to White, right, Matt White, because the Wobblies lost some really great people, right, um, who die in Spain in the late 30s. And so instead of being back in North America, where they might continue to organize, um, they instead die, right, uh, in uh, another place where uh, maybe it was worth dying. Um, and so we've gotten this book, right, examples from Ireland, Spain, and South Asia, as well as um, Mexico, right, like, uh, and South Africa, a variety of places where we've tried. And, you know, also untamed, right? Really individual authors write their own stories. Um, they are not, um, you, can, you can read chapters and they sort of stand alone. Um, uh, so the introduction tries to sort of frame them, but really uh, whatever one's interests are, you pick up that chapter and you go for it. Um, maybe you don't read anything else, but like if you do, you see that in fact, there's a lot of parallels happening, right? Um, as you point out, especially in that early 20th century time when many of these struggles were not simply employer worker struggles that actually struggles for against colonialism. And so World War One, the Wobblies in America take a non stance, uh, allowing essentially their members to decide for themselves. The organization was generally critical of the war and many of its members were critical of the war and was persecuted because of and during the war, right? Um, although the local I study in Philadelphia famously didn't take a stand against the war and was sometimes criticized within the organization before and since for not being more anti-war, right? Um, I understand that critique. Uh, but, uh, you know, World War II is a bit more clear. The lines are a bit more clear, right? Um, the lobbies aren't necessarily pacifist. Um, what they would say, like many other socialists, is that the real war is the class war, right? Uh, and so um, national agendas basically take us, take our eye off the ball. And in World War I, that argument's very clear, actually, um, because it, and it makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, which side are you on? Do you really support, like, I don't know, Britain in World War I, right? Like, I mean, they're a colonial oppressor. Why are we going to fight on behalf of the Brits? And, and, you know, so when many Wobblies are going, why are we being asked to die, right, um, to fight a war in Europe? It's a fair question, right? Like, uh, the Wobblies, have not been able to at that time, or were not able to figure out how to basically keep their head down, right? Um, uh, because of course the government and employers use the war effectively. And as we know in our times too, war is often an opportunity to repress um, radical ideas and radical people. Um, and so then people line up behind the flag might actually be economically beneficial in some ways, right? Like uh, um, unions grow a lot during World War II. Uh, the National Labor Relations Board and the War Labor Board, right, are basically saying, we don't want strikes, and so if it's going to cost the taxpayers a bit more money to placate workers, we'll just pay higher wages. And like, that. well, that's actually not so bad. No. And we can draw many parallels between the Trump era and the world that the Wobblies were organizing in, with huge multinational corporations controlling both the economy and the political system, and extremely weak unions that often fail to inspire political action to address the country's massive wealth inequality. We discussed what today's labor movement can learn from the Wobblies' history as we confront global challenges of monopoly capital and political reaction. We are mindful of you contributed to this book of our times, right, um, and the many parallels, as you say, to um, early 20th century and early 21st century worlds. That's why we sometimes call this the new or second gilded age, because it seems a lot like the late 19th and early 20th century, where large corporations really are calling the shots, and the state basically takes its orders from, right, um, and obviously there's a number of examples around the world of growing right-wing power at state level in many countries. We also see, like you point out, Occupy, you know, in Spain, Greece, in um, various other countries in Europe, or recently perhaps with uh, Corbyn in um, UK, right? We see actually not just a growing sort of organized right, we've actually seen a growing organized left uh, sort of 
you know, for whatever uh, you want to define it, like a lot of the energy of the Bernie Sanders campaign, right, like was channeling, I think, some of that Occupy energy, right, which was very diffuse. Um, to me, uh, what all these struggles might have in common, these are largely political struggles, right, like uh, that um, lack in organized labor presence, right, even if they are class-based in their analysis, because I think most people's fundamental complaint is that there's such tremendous inequality, right? economic, socioeconomic inequality, yet they quickly then pivot to political solutions, electoral politics, right? Like, uh, understandably so, um, because that's one potential avenue of struggle, right? Like, uh, um, so, to me, going back again to the Bay Area, to me, the height of Occupy is when the Port of Oakland shut down, right? Like, uh, um, the best example of how Occupy crosses this social movement invisible line to the labor movement where they do get perhaps America's most progressive labor union on the bus, right, um, and say we are going to um, shut down an important node of global capital for a moment, right, um, in solidarity with um, Occupy, right, like, and I think that all the folks in Occupy Oakland and Occupy Area couldn't, would agree that that was sort of a high watermark, right, like uh, in many other places where Occupy also very diffuse organizes, how do you cross that sort of line, because where am I going to look for allies? Unions are allies, right? Well, many of people in unions, right? Um, they are generally sympathetic, right? Like, uh, how do we sort of work as opposed to just see them as the enemy, right? Like, uh, um, and the answer is, um, you know, people on both sides, right, have to sort of reach across this sort of burning bridge. Um, and Wobblies perhaps can be that, right? Because many Wobblies are dual carters, right? You will belong to the IWW, but you also might be in a workplace that's not represented by the wealthies, or might be represented by a mainstream union, right? Uh, that's not just the case in the U.S., but actually um, in Germany, for instance, the German wealthies I know, are, they're in unions that actually are unions, normal unions, but they're also, you know, wobblies, right? Like, uh, that's the way it works in a number of other countries, right? And so um, that wobblies can essentially be this bridge within the labor movement, but then beyond the labor movement, right, um, might be one way that we think about their possible contribution. Right? Um, because in a number of countries, there have been mass mobilizations on the parts of ordinary people against inequality, like in our times, right? Um, a lot of that is still to be determined, right? Like, uh, we really don't know, I mean, whether it's sort of in Quebec, where there's been incredible mass mobilization in the last decade, right? Um, whether it's in um, Greece, for whatever has happened at that, you know, whatever the current situation is, um, or in, beyond, right, like uh, in India, right, um, where there's like the occasional mass strike that is like the largest strike in the world. And so, you know, I think that uh, the other um, sort of perhaps point is that, I mean, to me, as important as the United States is to me, having lived here for most of my life, right, um, this is a global struggle, right, and I actually don't see the United States leading whatever is next. I, um, I see that essentially radical tendencies will emerge out of places where it's actually more oppressed than the average American. Yes. Right? Like, uh, and that although Americans might be in solidarity with and support above, that actually, if if there's uprisings, it's not going to happen in the core. Right? Um, I, I sort of envision it on the periphery, what, what the core calls the periphery. Right? <laughs> um, because actually, the average American actually has more to lose than the average person in most other countries in the world. And while the Wobbly movement did have vibrant reverberations around the world throughout their history, it is important to remember that the union was founded in America. So I asked Peter Cole why he thinks the world's first truly radical industrial workers movement was begun in the United States, in a place where historically we've had weaker trade unions than many other countries. I would just say quickly, uh, I agree with you that um, it's that the IWW born in the U.S. is significant, right? Like, and it, uh, there were similar syndicalist sort of strands in many countries, but that the IWW was, I think, the, the sort of the largest and still most influential of those is noteworthy, right? Like, uh, um, but that you know, because America was this magnet in Chicago, in particular, as an example, right? that it was drawing people actually from beyond the United States to bring ideas, right, like to the United States, um, whether that was European anarchism or whether it was sort of indigenous, right, like the classic survey of America's IWW uh, basically argues that Wowies is sort of full-grown American, sort of emerges out of the Western frontier, if you will, Vosky's sort of like 
um, arguments. Um, and some of this book argues or suggests essentially that, well, that uh, oversimplifies what was in fact a multifaceted struggle that included international influences upon U.S. experiment, right? Um, but, you know, at that time, you're right. I mean, America was um, already the industrial powerhouse, right? Um, and therefore, was drawing people from around the world here because jobs, right? Like, uh, and so too, right? Like, uh, and so I agree with you that U.S. still has an important role to play in uh, social justice global struggle, right? Like, uh, even if I just poo-pooed, right, um, uh, us for not being willing to throw down the gauntlet, right? Like, uh, that, um, you know, um, past and present, right? As for women, well, the Wobblies were wise enough to sort of appreciate that women are workers too, right? Like, uh, and that's why they always call each other fellow workers. Right? I love brother and sister um, uh, within the labor movement, but like fellow worker um, is a very sort of, I mean, it's amazing that in 1905, they were starting to take essentially a non-gendered term to sort of uh, apply to their um, to their own, right? Like, uh, uh, and that although they organized women and there were women organizers, Right, um, women were a smaller percentage of the labor workforce, and so they are a smaller percentage of the membership. Right? question. Lucy Parsons, right? Like, uh, say no more. Right, uh, Elizabeth Hurley Friend, of course. Um, that one of the chapters in the book is about a far less well-known female activist in the Pacific Northwest, Edith Frenette. Right, uh, he's a great example, right, of how women were drawn to this and then became active in right um, struggles for. Uh, both speech, but also sort of uh, improved economic uh, lives, right? Um, uh, there were some badass women in the world, right? And that was Peter Cole, professor of history at Western Illinois University, who is editor, along with David Struthers and Kenyon Zimmer, of an exciting new anthology, Wobblies of the World, A Global History of the IWW. It's out from University of Chicago Press, and you can learn more about the book, and the Wobblies themselves on our website at DescentMagazine.org. You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. So... The Wobblies, Michelle, I've been kind of thinking about the Wobblies a lot. I've been thinking about um, the Knights of Labor a lot. I've been thinking about Eugene Debs's, you know, brief attempt at making a one big union kind of thing, because in the the moment that we're looking at for the labor movement in the U.S., like labor law is probably about to drastically change and the rules that unions have gotten used to operating under that have been sort of being slowly eroded are, you know, increasingly just like obviously not working. And so it seems like a really important time to be revisiting the wobblies and revisiting ideas that aren't sort of bargaining shop by shop through collective bargaining agreements, but like what unionism can look like in other forms. And so I'm really pleased to sort of have this conversation this week. Yeah, I think maybe starting during Occupy, people started to look at the Wobblies as kind of a resonant historical parallel um, in terms of just how people organized in a time when there were no rules, right? Um, before we had these policies that, for better or worse, um, guaranteed a certain amount of security at workplaces, right? The reason Janus exists is because it turns, essentially, the decision turns on this value that has been placed by the establishment on what they call labor peace, right? But what was it like to live in a world of labor war, right? That was, a, that was an era of class warfare. And I think that's scary to a lot of people in the labor movement. And that's why we have this recoiling from the prospect of Janus. And, and there are obviously very practical concerns bound up in that, right? Like you're having your entire institutional structure disrupted in one fell swoop. But, um, you know, it's a call to action, right? Yeah. Yeah. And Janus is the the Supreme Court case that is likely to, um, well, we talked about it a lot two episodes ago on episode 136 for our listeners who are not caught up with that yet. Um, but yeah, I mean, the thing about, you know, sort of labor war, right, of, of open class warfare is that like people don't want to be at war, right? People want to go to work and they want to get paid and they want to go home and they want to do something that isn't work. And so it is a challenge on that front, but also you know, this also reflects a, a moment where labor has really been depoliticized. And so now, you know, the sort of main 
institutions of organized labor in the U.S. and in a lot of other countries, too, since I just got back from England and Ireland, um, their main political expression is mostly like donating to and supporting a particular political party. In the U.K., it's the Labor Party. In the U.S., it's the Democrats. And the Wobblies were um, one of the things I thought found really fascinating about this conversation that you had was talking about the Wobblies connection to anti-imperial struggles, um, talking about two of my favorite, one of my favorite in particular um, historical figures, James Connolly from Ireland, um, and thinking about what it meant to imagine an expansive political role for labor, not a role for labor in electing a Democrat or a Labor Party prime minister or somebody who is going to make some labor law that's more favorable to the employees around the edges, but labor to be political in a way that means transforming the world. Right. And I think that gets back to the core of how you define politics, right? Because often, you know, in, in Wobbly, in sort of like left lore, the Wobblies are often associated with being apolitical, right? Or refute rejecting politics. But they rejected a certain kind of politics, right? They rejected the politics of compromise with power. Um, that term labor peace is so interesting because read from one end, it's really a double-edged sword, right? Um, does labor peace mean labor compromise? And, you know, at what price does that peace come? So when we talk about the Wobblies being anti-political, they were anti-institutionalized politics, right? And for what it's worth, I mean, there are parallels that can be drawn between where uh, there's an increasing turn towards the political left in terms of electoral politics in both the right. U.S. and Britain. But because Britain has always had a more militant trade labor presence within the Labor Party, they were able to turn their compromise with power into something that empowered labor more than it does here. Our unions are characterized by you know, following more or less what establishment Democrats do. Right. And there is a story this week that maybe we'll talk about more in the next episode that, that you know, Randy Weingarten from the AFT met with Steve Bannon while he was still directly working for Trump. And so, you know, which is just to say that like our labor movement has been characterized by its leaders sort of trying to get along with power in whatever way that can be and really being hesitant to just say, like, no, you're our enemy to somebody like Steve Bannon or Donald Trump. One of the things about the Wobblies to backtrack, and this does still have to do with, with Britain and with the political question of class, there was a piece written, and I forget it, who it was by. I'll see if I can find it so I can put it in the show notes. After the UK election that was talking about what the UK Labour Party could be as a mass party, as like a million member party. And this person was talking about it as being a mass labor, little l, organization, a mass worker organization, a way for workers who do not have collective bargaining contracts or the equivalent of you know bargaining contracts in the UK, workers who are not necessarily in conventional working relationships, to have an organization that could fight for them as workers. And to think about that, we're looking at, at a moment where... The DSA now has over, Democratic Socialists of America has over 30,000 members in the U.S. What would it look like, again, to have explicitly political organizations that also thought of themselves as potential vectors for fighting on the job um, and for, for organizing different workers across difference and across sort of different sectors and different workplaces together on the basis of class and not on a, a sort of narrow workplace basis, but on a broad basis of like, we are all working people and we are all struggling as working people together. Right. And I think about on the part of the labor movement that requires a politicization of the workplace in a way that is far more ideological than the mm -hmm. traditional sort of conventional bread and butter unionism that, you know, is often associated with these compromises with management and, and the contract. And if you think about how much of our current labor organizing is built around the sanctity of the contract, right? Mm -hmm. The one-sided sanctity of the contract, usually, right? Because the employer has no problem breaking the contract. Exactly. The employers are all about, like, capital has been all about disruption in the neoliberal era, right? And and you have labor fearing disruption because we don't know what to do when when the disruption is in our hands, right? Um, and so what, what does that mean to politicize the whole concept of disruption and use it to your advantage to build right. power? Right, right. 
Right. Disruption is ours. It should be ours. It has always been where the left's power is, right? Going back to like reading Rosa Luxemburg. You know, one of the things I found fascinating about this political moment is that like one of the biggest groups to come out of the the Trump moment is Indivisible, which is like based around a guide that was written by former congressional staffers who lived through the Tea Party onslaught. And the thing is, like the Tea Party took all those tactics from reading Francis Fox Piven and Saul Alinsky. Like this is these are tactics that are so alienated from the left now that w- they that we think we're taking them from the right when actually they are ours and they have always been ours. And this is why it's really important to know and to learn and to discuss and sort of continually recontextualize labor history. Um, and I'm saying this to Michelle, who is a labor historian. So. <laughs> in, in training, in training. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, but it's it has been informative. I mean, I think it's informative for all of us to have that sense of history. And I think that that is another aspect of this politicization that is necessary at this moment that gets lost, right? The idea of having a unifying narrative that comes from having a workforce that is educated about where movements come from and then can use that to inform their present day organizing, right? Um, And the Wobblies, I mean, they they came around, I mean, it's not coincidental that they were founded in the early 1900s at a time when you had vast movements of people and of mass media, right? Um, They were often organizing in, you know, like blue collar industries. I mean, these were not super educated people, but there was an intellectual strand within their organizing ethos that really placed a value in workers teaching each other and like um, learning from what came before and understanding like how to put your own present struggle in context. And I think that that's what I think a lot of the the left is having to relearn like, oh, wait, you mean like, um, you know, workers were forming cross-class, cross-racial alliances back in, you know, 1904 or like you know in the wake of world war one like how how did that happen or like before we had anti-globalization movements we had anti-imperialist movements that were using the wobbly franchise in south asia to revolt against the british empire right so i mean like there are all these parallels where i think what people fear right now is like they feel like they're stepping off of a precipice where like you know nothing has been done before in history and it's like Mm -hmm. no wait people have been here before right yeah well and they they certainly did get repressed um and they got the hell repressed out of them and you know when it comes to james Connolly, well he he did try to start a revolution in in uh there is no defense for what they did to him. But, you know, he was he was literally executed for his part in the Easter Rising. But before that, he was, you know, this guy who was organizing, you know, dock workers in Belfast and then was in Troy, New York, just about an hour and a half north of where I live and was, you know, came here just to be part of founding the Wobblies to go back. But when you look at people like Connolly and the, the way that they were conceptualizing both their fight as workers, their fight as, you know, as part of an anti-colonial struggle in Ireland and their internationalism in terms of like literally living and working in several different countries. Um, you, you see this model that like, it's totally a preview of a globalized world, right? That this is, something that we, you know, we don't think about being possible with the technology that they had a hundred years ago. Um, but we do, and we've always had the left particularly has always had a framework for internationalism. It's, it's in workers of the world unite. Interesting little side note that I'm going to share. Cause I think our listeners will appreciate it. While we were in London, we went to the, the Highgate cemetery where Marx is buried and around Marx's grave, which literally says workers of all lands unite on the, the, um, monument. There are workers of all lands buried around him. There are Kurdish communists and there are Iraqi communists and there are Indian communists and there are, you know, the, the gravestones are written in so many different languages and it's kind of the communist corner of the, the graveyard. And you look at this and you go like, we've always had an international movement. We've always had an understanding that capital is global. And 
we, we have to remember that somehow. It's in the name, right? Workers of the world, right? So, I mean, you know, they even even in 1905, I mean, this is pre-Bolshevik revolution. This was, um, you know, pre any socialist party um, in America. But before we had like the recognizable institutionalized partisan left in this country, we had people who understood on a very visceral level what it meant to work across borders, right? And to organize across borders and to share ideologies across borders because they were doing the sharing, right? They were the ones moving from port to port, the maritime workers passing out flyers, right? Um, you know, they were the political exiles who, um, you know, they, they, yes, they were deported, right? Uh, this, is a, this is another era. This is the first era of mass deportation, right? Oh, yeah. Explicitly political deportation. Right. And they turn their political exile into another um, force of organization, right? Um, and, you know, this is not to endorse the deportation, but the idea of um, knowing that the government is not on your side no matter where you go, right? I mean, that that requires a really global outlook that um, that the times demanded of the workers and that the workers also demanded of each other when they were trying to build their movement in response to all of this. And like again and again, when I was reading this history, this global history of um, the Wobblies, I mean, um, it's important to, to understand that they, they put the words world and they put industrial in their name very deliberately, right? Um, they understood that um, they needed to look at organizing all workers across sectors um, and they needed to recognize that they needed to organize beyond borders and there are so many parallels between the era of organizing in that era of, of late imperialism and um, organizing in our era of neoliberalism now right um, right and you know the the idea of the one big union and this is this is again why I'm obsessed with this particular period and these particular formations right now is that, you know, we do have, again, we have increasingly atomized workplaces, right? Like you and I are recording this over Skype because I'm at my home office and you're at your home office because we don't have offices. Um, you have an increasingly atomized individualized workforce that doesn't have a big shop floor to meet on, but does increasingly have a sense of itself as working class. And so, you know, a, a framework that was once used in order to unite people across fairly big workforces a lot of the time, but also to organize people who were doing piecework at home, right? This is a framework that can be very useful to us again to say that like, okay, I can't organize my workplace because I don't have a workplace to organize. I could organize my dog, I guess. Harlem, you want to be in a union? But we can think about what would an organization, what would a membership organization that we invest our, you know, our work and our time to build that doesn't need permission from the NLRB to exist and that organizes us and puts us in contact with one another so that we can learn from each other and think about, you know, how to use disruption, right? The Wobblies famously did not believe in contracts. They believed in direct action on the shop floor, and how do we think about that in a moment like this one where, you know, again, we have we have communications tools that they couldn't have dreamed of. Right. What would Big Bill Haywood have thought of the Internet? Um, he probably would have been awesome at Twitter. You know, and it's, it's easy to, to romanticize the Wobblies, too. Like they definitely screwed up a lot of things and their their some of their strategies did not work. And they were, of course, violently, violently repressed and exiled, deported, whatever. Um, but I think that this is particularly why, like, good critical histories are important right now so that we can sort of see what worked and what didn't. Right. Otherwise, we can sort of like condemn ourselves to this mire of cynicism and despair and and that doesn't help anyone right i mean i think um you can we can call it romanticization and kind of dismiss it that way but it is also um a you know a, a sense of idealism that comes from being at a moment where you're at a new horizon and everything seems uncertain and unstable and of course that's scary um, but if you want, I mean, that's very parallel to the moment we're all in now, right? Um, with this moment of like 
people are waking up and they're like, I don't recognize my country anymore. And, you know, the, and, and people feel profoundly um, destabilized from what they knew before. And I can understand why when we're faced with the prospect, like the decision coming up in Janice, it feels like doom because it, like the last sort of like node of stability at our workplaces that we have to cling to, you know, might be going out the window soon. But um, I mean, when we talk about how the Wobblies sort of went viral before going viral was a thing, what they were able to do was instrumentalize and weaponize culture, right? And and I think that a renewal of a workplace culture and a workplace politics um, is one thing that can serve as an organizing tool that is based on, um, I don't want to say volunteerism, but on, on willful direct action rather than sort of, uh, you know, building membership by default. Right. Right. And, and not only by default, but by sort of, you know, in many cases right now, we're looking at, at like state action. Like this is what politics has come to for unions again is, is getting for, I'm thinking about home care workers, right. Is getting the state to agree to, call these workers state employees in order for them to have union contracts. And then the Supreme Court has already gone after that. Um, like these kinds of, of questions here that don't are strategies that don't rely on necessarily organizing a majority of workers or organizing even that many workers. And there's, I think there's a, there's a tension between those two things too, that I think is important. Like we are going to be, in an era of thinking about minority unions a whole lot because we're not going to probably have, and we, we haven't had a functioning NLRB for a long time, we should say, but we're going to have to be thinking about minority unionism. And also, again, like I said, thinking of something like the Wobblies, minority union sort of sounds small, right? If you have a work, a union that is a fraction of the workforce at a particular shop, but when, you think instead about having a lot of people who are members of a big organization that may not have a majority in any particular shop, but is in fact an organization of 10, 20, 30, 40,000 people. That's a different thing than just thinking about like a minority union in the corner of one place. Because that, I mean, that, that is a, a way of defining the workplace as this self-contained unit, like a political unit. Um, which is, you know, the collective bargaining unit and, and politics not going beyond that. Uh, whereas when you think about labor as a movement, you know, look, when the Wobblies were organizing around the world at their, at their heyday, they were a franchise without majoritarian representation in a lot of the places where they were strong, but they were also leading strikes at the same time, right? Um, majority representation is not how a lot of countries do it. Um, you know, the, this is sort of like a unique accident of American politics that it's happened. And and remember, like Abood, the decision, um, the precedent that Janice may overturn um, is only 40 years old, right? <laughs> I mean, there's a time, unions were organizing before that, right? Um, you know, the people people are still alive today who remember the labor movement before before uh, we had uh, uh, public sector, you know. Uh, and if you are one of those people listening to this podcast, we want to hear from you. Right. And and, and that's why right, the, the movement to get right to work policies and different states is is uh you know is 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 as old as you know um a, a lot of unions are today right i mean they've been they, they understood that once you corner the labor movement that way that that is a very good way to like sort of smother them but now if you redefine the the rules of the game and also the um the parameters of the field that you're organizing on right um you can you can take back control of the game right Right. And, and, you know, we, we've seen sort of attempts at thinking like this, right, with the Walmart workers campaign or the fight for 15 in, in ways that neither of them have exactly solved the problem, but they were both attempts to understand the fact that, like, you weren't going to organize Walmart or McDonald's by going store by store. Right. Or, or even Acorn, right? You think about that as like a working class organization that isn't workplace based or union based, but it built these partnerships that made it very aligned with, you know, it, it built on that um, community labor alliance and that kind of energy that I think, um, you know, our conversation with Jane uh, McLevy uh, spoke to that a lot um, in terms of her uh, studies of like the difference between organizing and mobilizing. Right? 
Right. And the, the way that, you know, we think about what is a community organization versus what is a labor organization, right? If you think about it, like the, just the phrase community labor alliance is weird. Like workers don't live in communities and that like community members don't work, you know, it's a, it's a strange thing. Like most, most people are workers and most people in community organizations are workers or working class people who are working in the home or perhaps unemployed people who are looking for work. Um, that this is an ongoing sort of weird way that we think about this, that like the community and the political organization are separate things from the labor organization. And in this moment, we don't really have a choice for those things to be more connected. And so you're seeing this with the change in the way that many sort of, you know, post ACORN community organizations are organizing, that they are both becoming more explicitly political in terms of local politics and also in terms of just like having an openly sort of anti-capitalist critical analysis that goes deeper than just what's going on in your community, but actually like how is global capital responsible for what's going on in your community? And wouldn't it be great if we could democratize the economy? And these are literal, you know, things that have, you know, are parts of platforms of, of things like um, people's action and New York communities for change. This is like what these groups are now talking about in a way that they didn't five years ago. And this false dichotomy between labor and community or the fact that it requires a hyphen for us to think about those concepts like in tandem with each other is a byproduct of the right's triumph in many ways in sort of changing even the way we talk about ourselves um, and, and our lives, our daily work and, and home lives um, in a way that adheres to this bifurcation that capitalism is premised on. And that particularly neoliberal capitalism is premised on, right? Is it like everything is sort of atomized and turned into a product of individual choice? And so therefore all of these things are separate rather than like, this is my life. I spend, you know, however many, I'm not going to tell y'all how many hours a day I spend working because I am politically not in favor of how much I work. Um, and then I spend however many hours until I fall asleep doing something else. And then I spend weekends doing something else. And these are all parts of who I am. If I go canvassing for a political candidate in my neighborhood this weekend, you know, that is part of who I am. And it's not separable from the other things that I am and do. Right. And, and everything we do is sort of just like taking an individual box in which our lives are compartmentalized because that's the way we're taught to organize that that's the way we're taught to sort of like um, because neoliberalism and I guess this whole idea of like monetizing everything, right? Everything is calculated. Everything comes down to a data point, right? And the more time we invest in, in calculating our lives, the less time we spend in um, building connections that are more organic, right? Um, mm -hmm. For God's sakes, we haven't even been in the same room together since I can't even remember. I'm so. sorry. I moved north. And, and like, you know, case in point, I mean, how do we individually define community, right? I mean, you're you're not in the city, and yet I, I still think that you would define New York as part of your current community, right? And, yeah. and you know, our journalism takes us to far-flung places, um, but we have a community of, of journalists that maybe we've never met before, that we only know through social media, right? So there are all these different connections, and, and we're sort of taught to value some more than others, but if we can redefine community itself, then we can start to get places. Right. And we can think about, you know, again, like, what does it mean that, and on our last episode, I, I had an interview with the Ian Hodson from the Bakers Union in the UK. What does it mean to really think about a labor movement that is exchanging ideas and having and building relationships across oceans, across the internet? in this way that can be more immediate and, and more, you know, meaningful because we can actually talk to each other a lot. Whereas like, you know, James Connolly had to like mail a letter across the ocean when he was in Troy and he was keeping in contact with people in, you know, in Ireland, like, or, or send himself into political exile onto like another continent. <laughs> I mean, right. That this is, this is, it should be easier for us to think this way now because we have, the tools to do it. And 
we have to, we, I mean, we have to, whether we like it or not, right? This is, we can sound like we're sort of saying that like the Janus case is going to be great because it's going to usher in this whole new era. And like, that's not necessarily true. Like labor could be just completely screwed because we don't know what to do. Yes. This moment. There, there are very, very good reasons to be afraid right now. But like sort of whether we like it or not, we have to be aware of the changes that are coming because, you know, they are, they are coming, they are coming in the shape of the workplace and they are coming in the form of Donald Trump's Supreme court. And that's the reality, how we respond to that reality and what we learn from previous realities is going to determine what the labor movement looks like five or 10 years from now. There was a really great conversation that in these times had between Sean Richmond and Bill Fletcher, talking about this and and about how you never know when these sort of big, exciting periods of labor unrest and labor disruption and change happen, labor action, right? And we have to actually have some big ideas hanging around because we don't want to be in one of those moments. And then like the biggest demand we have is, is, you know, card check. Right. And I think that um, sort of the folly of many movements is when they start to rest on their own laurels and feel too secure in what they've won, right? When movements stop moving. Right. And and I guess, you know, you could call it being a victim of your own success. But um, the flip side of that is that, um, you know, people who there, there are people in the labor movement, really veterans of the labor movement who are like, we should have been preparing for Janice years ago, right? Um, we should oh, we should never stop being prepared. And, and, and uh, you know, the reason we fear insecurity is because we lack that bevy of ideas and organizing energy to draw from um, within, like, an arsenal that we should be constantly replenishing. And I think that capital wins when they destroy our sense of uh, this continuity. And, um, and... And, and we win when we remember movements like the Wobblies and can bring that into the contemporary moment and say that, yes, we are the heirs to this legacy of ongoing struggle. And it's for us to define how the new phase of that struggle is going to begin. That was, well, Michelle and I talking to each other about the industrial workers of the world and the new book, Wobblies of the World, A Global History of the IWW, edited by Peter Cole, David Struthers, and Kenyon Zimmer. Our conversation today was recorded in part at a book event Michelle participated in with Peter Cole. We will put a link to the book, the video of that event, and the other things we discussed in this episode up at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org. Thank you, as always, to our editor, Natasha Lewis, and to our sustaining members. You can become one of those sustaining members at descentmagazine.org slash belabored-membership. a month gets you a sweet belabored tote bag and bragging rights to all your friends. You can also make one-time donations and subscribe to Descent there. You can always reach us at belabored at descentmagazine.org or tweet at us at hashtag belabored. We will be back in two weeks to talk about more developments in the labor movement at home and beyond. And in the meantime, keep up the struggle. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.